This is Truth Encounter, and thank you for joining us as we continue our study in Ephesians chapter 2 with David Lowry, a colleague of Dave Wurtzen's and fellow professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. Let's join Dr. Lowry as he begins with an object lesson with the children for our study of Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 18. I've got some old passports with me that uh, belong to our kids. Every, every few years I uh, have had to haul our family out of the country on uh, related to studies. Uh, my work at the seminary, I've been to a couple of different universities in Europe, and each family member has needed to get a passport. But children's passports expire after about five years. So. My kids have had to get uh, periodic ones. And help yourself to take one of those just to take a look at it. And uh, I'm not sure whose picture might be in it, but we have some where kids are just a year old and three years old and five years old, and then five years later, they go through the same experience. Let me read what's inside the first page on a U.S. passport. It says, The Secretary of State of the United States of America hereby requests all whom it may concern to permit the citizens of the United States named herein to pass without delay or hindrance and in case of need to give said citizens all lawful aid and protection. If your picture is in a U.S. passport, you're a citizen of the United States. And that's what this testifies to. There are many people who would like to have a passport like this to be able to come to this country and live here and work. I realize many of us are saying we're having a hard time finding jobs ourselves. The economy is kind of slow. But in many parts of the world, they look to the United States as the best place to live and work and to raise a family. And there are many people who would like to come and have a passport just like this. But there's a more important passport. Some of you may have passports, you may have been outside the country, or you may one day go outside the country and need one of these. But there is a much more important passport for all of us. That is to be a citizen not so much of the United States, but a citizen of heaven. Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, our citizenship is in heaven from where we await a savior. So however wonderful it is to be in this country, and all of you who are sitting here are no doubt American citizens, and you could get a passport if you wanted to. But the most important citizenship is not here in the United States, but it's to be a citizen of heaven. And that's what our passage is going to talk about this morning. Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to look at a change that has happened to all of us. We have the prospect of being now citizens of heaven. So these passports, they're not any good anymore. But if you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you have a passport that will take you to heaven. You're a citizen of heaven, and that's the important one to have. Thanks for your help this morning, and would you pass those passports back this way, please? Even though they're no good, I have sentimental connections to them. Thanks very much, and you can go on back to your seat. Thanks for coming up. Last week, we ended our time together by reflecting upon... Uh, Harry Ironside's experience with an agnostic who challenged him to a debate concerning agnosticism and Christianity. And you'll recall 
Harry's response was, I'll be glad to debate you, but I want you to bring some evidence of individuals whose lives have been changed, changed dramatically, by their commitment to agnosticism. And I'll bring 100 people whose lives have been dramatically changed by their commitment to Christ and the experience of salvation that Christ brings. I want to look with you this morning at this passage. We're continuing our study of Ephesians chapter 2. And I'd like to look with you at Ephesians 2, 11 through 18 this morning. This is a passage, and again, I'm, I'm going to be reading a, a text from the Net Bible. Uh, this is a passage that talks about a change in status for all of us as his people, uh, but especially many of us who are in this room because of our ethnic backgrounds. Uh, there was a dramatic change that took place with the coming of Christ and the work of Christ. And that's what Paul's talking about here in 2.11 and following. He has already spoken about how we have been set free from sin and from the spiritual enemies that opposed us and held us in bondage. And we have the capacity to say no to sin and yes to God because of God's deliverance of us. In Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, he's narrated this. And God is making us into his new people. He's also bringing us together into a new relationship and a new creation. And that's what 2, 11 through 18 talks about. He says this, Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles, in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision that is performed in the body by hands. Now he is addressing here for the most part a church in what is now modern-day Turkey that was composed of people like ourselves, Gentiles, non-Jews. This particular word in the Greek uh, is the word ethne. It's, it comes into English, we use the word ethnic or ethnicity. It means a person's racial, cultural background. But in the Greek language, the Greeks use it to describe anyone who was a non-Greek, who didn't speak Greek. They were the ethne. And the Romans used it to describe anyone who was non-Italian, who was a non-Roman. They were the ethne as well. When Alexander the Great began his conquering of the eastern part of the world, in around 325 BC, one of the things he wanted to do was spread as well the Greek culture. Alexander was a fellow who had been well educated. Uh, Aristotle was one of his teachers, and he determined that he was going to spread the Greek culture around the world. And he did it militarily as one of the most successful generals in the history of the world. And as he began to conquer in the east and plant cities, he brought with him the Greek language. And ultimately, Greek became the language that was the second language in the world, a bit like English is today. So for almost a thousand years, if anybody wanted to learn a second language, as it were, they learned Greek, just the way people like to learn English today. And when the Jews decided to translate their Bible, which was written in Hebrew, into Greek, this is the word they used to describe non-Jews. Ethne, Gentiles. The Hebrew word is goyim, the people of the nations around them. But this is the word that came across, ethne. And so when Paul uses this word as he writes it here, it's out of that backdrop of the Greek Old Testament. And it means basically all of us. We may have a few uh, Jews among us who have come to faith. I know we do have some Hebrew uh, folks in our congregation. 
Every year at school, I have a few students who are out of a Jewish background, out of a Jewish family, who have come to faith in Christ, come to seminary, or involved in ministry. But for the most part, the church around the world is a Gentile church. But notice Paul says, this is a dramatic change from what existed before. It's true, there were Gentiles who came to faith, Gentiles who were associated with the people of Israel. In fact, if you read the first chapter of Matthew, there are a number of Gentile women there who are mentioned as ancestors of Christ. And so Gentiles have been a part of the people of Israel, have been incorporated, but only a very few. With the coming of Christ, there was a dramatic change, and that's what Paul's narrating in this passage, and it affects us. Uh, No longer is circumcision the defining mark of those who are associated with the covenant of Abraham, which it was. God ordained that in Genesis chapter 17. He asked Abraham and all his descendants to circumcise themselves as a mark of the covenant. That no longer is required. What is required, Paul says, is entrance into relationship with God by faith based on what Christ has done. But notice how he describes what was our situation or our condition in Ephesians 2.12 that you were at that time without the Messiah. That is, we had no hope of a deliverer. The word Messiah means one who's been anointed by God to carry out a special work. And the Jews understood the Messiah was going to be their redeemer, their savior, their deliverer. And Paul says, but we Gentiles had no Messiah. We had no hope. But God in his grace has brought us in. That's what he's going to say in this passage. He has brought us as well into this relationship where we have now one who is, in fact, our deliverer and our savior. We were, he says, alienated from the citizenship of Israel. That is, for most of us, we had no relationship with Israel as a people. We were non-citizens. We may have wanted to get in, but in order to do that, we had to become Jews. We had to become the people of Israel. And Paul says, for most of us, we were outside that. We were aliens. Uh, We were a people, I have in these passports, for example, a stamp, a rubber stamp that says, alien registration with the Scottish police. And it's got a little number there, and it's in my passport. I was an alien in Scotland, uh, a registered alien, but an alien nonetheless. And it's stamped there in my, my passport. Anybody who saw me in the street knew I was an alien by how I dressed and the fact that I carried an umbrella when it rained. The Scots didn't do that. They said, what's wrong with you Americans? It's just rain. It's not going to hurt you. You know, you just walk out in it. (laughs) And one warm summer day, I wore a pair of short pants. And I I walked down the street, and the guy said, that's a very good idea. Shorts, you know. It was kind of a new concept for them. Frankly, it wasn't that warm that often in Scotland that I needed to put on a pair of shorts, but... uh, I was an alien, and it was pretty clear to anyone who talked to me that uh, I was not a member of this culture. And that, Paul says, was true for all of us as well. We were aliens. We were outside. We were not citizens of the people of Israel, outside the commonwealth of Israel. And he says, we were strangers to the covenants of promise. The promise God gave Abraham, the promise God gave David, all of these things were foreign to us. They were given to people who were members of the people of Israel, but not to the wider world at this time. Having no hope. Paul is attempting here to paint as bleak a picture of our state, our Gentile condition as he can. And he basically says, 
our situation was hopeless. Apart from relationship with God, it was a hopeless existence. We were, finally, he says, without God in the world. Uh, this is the word from which we get atheist, ah, away. Um, we use it of people who don't believe in God, but here it is used of a people who have no relationship with God. Now, in the, the ancient world, the Greeks and the Romans believed that the Jews were essentially atheists, and then when the Christians came along, they described them as atheists as well because they denied the Greek and the Roman gods. And so from a Greek and Roman point of view, Christians and Jews were atheists. They were God deniers, as it were. And in fact, this became one of the issues that led to the martyrdom of many in the early church, their refusal to acknowledge the emperor as a divine being and to worship him. Stephen was the first Christian martyr, and his death is recorded in Acts. And there were many martyrs after that that we, we do not know in the early church, except for the fact that we know Nero was involved with killing many Christians in the 60s. But we have a description of a fellow named Polycarp, who was one of the leaders in the church, again, very near this area, in Smyrna, in Turkey. And he died in the arena in 160 or so A.D. And basically what he was asked to do was to deny his faith in Christ and basically to say, I want to have nothing to do with these Christians. And the, what he was asked to say was, away with the atheists, as his way of showing he was separating himself from Christians. Here's the account as it's written up. He says, um, when he was brought forward, the proconsul asked him if he were Polycarp. And when he admitted it, he tried to persuade him to deny, saying, respect your age and so forth, as they are accustomed to say, swear by the genius of Caesar. Repent. Interesting that the pagans would use this same word. Uh, change your mind about this. Turn away from this. Get away from this, this belief of yours and say indeed that Caesar is indeed a divine one. And say this, away with the atheists. But Polycarp, with a stern countenance, looked on all the crowd of lawless heathen. Interesting, the word that is used here in the Greek text to describe this is ethnon, our word Gentile again. In an arena, and he waved his hand at them, he groaned and looked up to heaven and said, away with the atheists. In other words, he kind of turned it upside down and said, you are the atheists out here. You are the people who don't have a relationship with God. When the proconsul pressed him, and said, take the oath, and I let you go. Revile Christ. Polycarp said, for eighty and six years have I been his servant, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And it narrates his death by being burned alive. Um, Polycarp was one of many in the early church who died because he refused to deny his faith in Christ. Uh, and Paul says, up until this time, Polycarp would have been outside the sphere of those who had a relationship with God. But now, by the grace of God, Paul says, he has brought us in. He has brought Gentiles into relationship with himself. And he narrates that here in 2.13 and following. But now, he says, in Christ, you who used to be far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That is, Christ's death in our behalf becomes the means, Paul says, by which all people can now enter in and have a relationship with God. 
For he is our peace, the one who turned both groups into one and who destroyed the middle wall of partition, the hostility in his flesh. Now, this is a very difficult passage to work with and to interpret. And in fact, it's a passage that we assign students, seminary students, in our class on interpretation to work through. What are the options for interpretation here? What is Paul talking about? What does he mean, this middle wall of partition? And how does this relate to the idea of hostility in which Christ destroyed by his death? <clears throat> Let me give you, this is a slide of the temple as it existed in the first century. And even as Paul wrote, it continued to exist. Gentiles, as you can see, I'm standing here in the court of the Gentiles, could come up into the temple. All of this area is a part of the temple. But there was a barrier that ran around the main part of the temple building, which, in which was the, the Holy of Holies, ultimately. And beyond this barrier, I, as a Gentile, would not be permitted to pass. In fact, there was a sign. It was a low barrier, about three or four feet high. Uh, so I could look over. I could see what was going on. I could come in to the court of the Gentiles. I could worship God in this court. But I could not go into the main temple, nor was I, did I have access to the altar where sacrifices were made. That was, that was not open to me as a Gentile. And in fact, there were placards that were on there, and we have found these. Archaeologists have uncovered several of these placards that say, anyone from among the nations, not of the people of Israel who passes beyond this line, does so at liability of their life. And this was one thing the Romans permitted the Jews to do in terms of carrying out capital punishment, was any Gentile who entered into that part of the temple could be executed. And that illustrated the divide, we might say, the division between Israel and the Gentiles. Now, I don't actually think Paul was talking about that in this passage. I think primarily what he was talking about is the fact that in the Old Testament there was a holiness code that was given to the people of Israel concerning how they should observe certain days, what foods they should eat, what was clean and not clean, how they should render themselves fit for relationship with God by means of ritual cleansing. And one of the things that made the Jews unclean was association with unclean Gentiles. And that obviously created a great deal of animosity on the part of Gentiles who basically said, do you Jews really think you're better than we are? that somehow we make you unclean, we make you impure. And there was this, this misunderstanding and also the feelings that it generated. So anti-Semitism is not something new in our modern world. It was a part of the ancient world as well. Now, the Jews were a legal religion as far as the Romans were concerned, but there was always some measure of hostility and animosity between Jews and Gentiles for the most part. The Jews were open to Gentiles coming into the synagogue, but they wouldn't eat with them, and they couldn't bring them into the temple. That, Paul says, came to an end. Because what Christ has done is bring to an end all of these laws concerning cleanliness and, and holiness that were a part of the old covenant. Notice how he says this. He says, he has broken down this middle wall of partition, the hostility in his flesh. That is, by his death, Christ has broken down and changed things. When he, verse 15, nullified the law 
of the commandments and the decrees. He did this to create in himself one new man out of two, thus bringing peace. Christ, by his death for sin, dealt with the issue of people coming into the presence of God. And now it's not a matter of ritual. It's not a matter of right. It is a matter of trusting and relying upon the work that Christ has done for us. That is what brings us now into relationship with God and with one another, he says. Jews and Gentiles together, he's making a new creation. And this new creation, Paul's going to say, is the church. It is the people of God now. We are the people of God because of what Christ has done. He's reconciled us, both of us together, Jews and Gentiles, in one body to God through the cross, by which the hostility, and I think here he means the sin of all of us, that separated us from God, has been killed. By Christ's death, he dealt with the fundamental issue in human experience, and that is our sin, which separated us from God and became a context for separating Jew and Gentile. And Christ, by his death, destroyed that. And he made it possible for us to have a relationship not only with one another as Jews and Gentiles, but more importantly, with God. And 2.17 says, And he came and preached peace to you who were far off. That's us. Uh, That's us Gentiles. I should say that's we. Uh, That is we Gentiles. Get my grammar correct here since I teach grammar. I should actually speak correct English. Um, And those who were near. So, We have been brought together, he says, by the work of Christ. And he is our peacemaker. But then we are called, likewise, to be peacemakers. Jesus' word to his disciples, we are called to be a people who do all we can to preserve peace. In fact, when we turn to chapter 4 of this letter, the first thing Paul is going to say is, let us do all we can to preserve the unity and the bond of peace that we enjoy. That's been a priority Uh, among our church family. We've worked hard at that to do what we can to live at peace with one another. When there are issues that need to be addressed, to not shy away from addressing them, but to do so in a spirit of humility and with a willingness to be able to hear all the issues and maybe sometimes agree to disagree, but maintain our love for one another. That's been a priority, and we've had to work at it through the years. It's also important for us in the wider Christian community. It's pastors from this church who were instrumental in beginning a ministerial association in the city of Midlothian and say, let's come together as churches. Let's do more collectively as the people of God in the city of Midlothian. And so that's been an important consideration for us. And then more widely, we are called to be peacemakers in the wider world. And we do that primarily through preaching the gospel. And that's why we have a commitment to evangelism here. We have a commitment to supporting those who are involved in evangelism around the world. It's why we support the missionaries we do, why we are committed to the extension of the gospel as far as it can go and have the gospel preached as widely as possible because Christ is our peace and we are called likewise to be a people who make peace. We come and preach this and carry it out. So that, he says in 2.18, through him... We both have access in one spirit to the Father. 2.18 is one of those verses where you have the Trinity essentially mentioned. The Him is Christ, the Spirit and the Father. All three persons of the Trinity are involved now in a relationship with us 
because of what Christ has done. We have this access to God where we can pray wherever we are and come into God's presence. And he hears us and he's responsive to us. We have no need of intermediaries. No need for anyone to come to a pastor of this church and say, will you intercede for me before God? We are happy to do that, but you have direct access before God. You need no intermediary to do that. You come into his presence. You can pray to him directly. We are all, as the writer of Hebrews says, priests before God. We have direct access to him. This week, we have a little dog that we're taking care of. It's my son's dog. Um, his name is Gordon. He's a pug. And cute little, little dog. He stinks, but he's a cute little dog. Uh, <clears throat> the reason, actually, we have Gordon is because he does stink a little bit. Now, my wife will deny that. My wife is completely devoted to Gordon and doesn't think he stinks. But uh, the reason we have him is because he was living with my son with some other college students in Austin, and they said, John, we like your dog, but he stinks. And so John called us and said, rather than create hard feelings among these guys in the house, will you take Gordon? So Gordon came to live with us. And we think Gordon's a wonderful little fellow. But this week, he got up one morning with kind of a gimpy back leg and was having a hard time walking. And, and, uh, you know, my feeling was, tough it out there, Gordon. You'll be better after a little while. (laughs) But, But my wife said... Something has happened to Gordon. We need to take him to Dr. Wofford. And I thought, okay, we'll take Gordon down to Dr. Wofford. If it were me, I think she probably said, just take rest, go to bed, you know, he'll be fine. <laughs> but we took Gordon down to Dr. Wofford. He spent two days down there uh, with Dr. Wofford, and Dr. Wofford analyzed him and determined that he'd probably strained something, gave him uh, some sort of a muscle relaxant, and when Gordon came back to us, he was his happy, normal self, everything was great, uh, he was medicated, but he was having a great time, you know. <clears throat> I thought of Gordon. I, I was going to suggest to my wife that we just change his name to a good biblical name like Mephibosheth. <laughs> Do you know the story of Mephibosheth? Let me tell it to you. It's, it's, I think it, it illustrates in part two where Paul's going in this passage. Um, Mephibosheth was a son of Jonathan. Let me read this. This is a passage from... 2 Samuel chapter 9. This chapter is devoted to the story of Mephibosheth. David has just become king. And instead of eliminating, as it were, the family of his predecessor, he asks this question. Is anyone still left from the family of Saul so that I might extend kindness to him for the sake of Jonathan? Now the word that gets translated kindness through here is a wonderful Hebrew word, kesed. It means God's loyal and faithful and merciful love for people. And it gets associated here with David. David wants to be an instrument of that as well in the life of Saul's family. Saul, you recall, pursued David for years and years, sought to kill him. Uh, Saul regarded David as his great enemy, a man to be done away with. And God had appointed David to be king, and David became king. And when he did, he says, I want to show kindness to the family of Saul. Now, there was a servant from Saul's house named Ziba, So he was summoned to David. David asked him, are you Ziba? He said, I am. The king asked, is there not someone left from Saul's family that I might extend God's kindness to him? Again, kesed Elohim, the kindness of God, the mercy of God. Ziba said to the king, one of Jonathan's sons is left. Both of his feet are crippled. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, 
he bowed low with his face toward the ground. David said, Mephibosheth? He replied, yes, it is I. David said to him, don't be afraid because I will surely extend kindness to you for the sake of Jonathan, your father. You will be a regular guest at my table. Then he bowed and said, of what importance is your servant that you show regard for a dead dog like me? Um, Mephibosheth identifies with being a dog, an unclean animal, as it were, and he says, practically a dead dog, but yet you show me this kindness. And David, indeed, brings him into the family, and chapter uh, 9 ends with this statement. So Mephibosheth was a regular guest at David's table, as though he were one of the king's sons. Now that illustration of Mephibosheth in the household of David is in some measure what Paul's talking about in terms of our present experience. We were like Mephibosheth. In fact, the Jews referred to Gentiles as dogs, as unclean people. And here we have been brought, Paul says, into relationship with God. We are sitting, as it were, at the king's table. Mephibosheth ends his life the way the 23rd Psalm ends. You recall that Psalm? Surely your goodness and faithfulness will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will live in the Lord's palace for the rest of my life. That was the portion of Mephibosheth. And that, Paul says, is not only something we can enjoy, but much more than that. We enjoy relationship with God. We have been, as it were, invited to be members of his family, to share his table, as it were. We look forward to spending eternity with him. And there's no forms to fill out. There's no requirements. We don't have to come before someone and say, will you take me? It is something which is extended to us. By the grace of God, we are told, come. Jesus says, whosoever will may come. Come unto me, and I will give you rest. Enter into relationship, he says, with me freely. Drink of the water freely. We have this, Paul says, because of what Christ has done for us. And his invitation is, come in to the family. Become a member of this group who sit at the king's table who would enjoy fellowship with him. That's the great privilege, Paul says. And we, as a people, are called to be ones who experience that peace and also emissaries, ambassadors of that peace, bringing others into that relationship as well. I trust you have responded to the invitation of God to have a relationship with him through the work that Christ has done for us. And I trust that as we look forward to spending eternity with him, your portion likewise will be to sit at the king's table and fellowship with him. That we'll all be a people who will say, like Mephibosheth, uh, we have the joy of eating at the king's table, entering into his presence. Let's pray together. Lord, we give thanks for your grace and for your mercy. We thank you for the reality of your mercy that has been from the first of creation and is our portion now because of what Christ has done for us. May we indeed be a people who have experienced that, who live in light of that, and who practice that in our relationship with one another. A people who have been forgiven, who have experienced your love, and in turn, love and forgive others. May we as well be a people who let our lights shine, that others may see your truth and may be responsive to it. Pray your blessing on each of us 
As we go our ways this week, may we be emissaries of your grace and of your love in this world. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.